this third uh, talk, which is the last in, in this retreat, um, will continue on the same lines, exploring this idea of starting all over again, going back to beginnings. And the particular idea I want to look at this evening is the idea of, uh, of the path, specifically what the Buddha called the, the middle path. And the middle path, it seems, is really very much the alpha and the omega of what he taught, the beginning and the end. The beginning in the sense that this was the very first idea that he affirmed when he began teaching in the Deer Park at Sarnath to his five former companions in asceticism. The first thing he announced that was that he had, he had found a middle path. That's where it begins. He doesn't say, I've experienced nirvana. He doesn't say, I've had a great enlightenment. He says, I've found a middle path. And then when we fast forward 45 years to the Buddha lying now on his deathbed between two sal trees in the town of Kusinara, he receives one last disciple, a man called Subhadda. And he receives Subhadda into his community. And then Subhadda asks him, what is, what is it that is distinctive about what he teaches? And he says, what is distinctive about my teaching is the fact that it teaches the middle path. So we find both as the very first thing he says in his first teaching and also the very first thing he says in his last teaching is the same, namely the middle path. Now, what we have seen so far particularly uh, in the second talk, was how the middle path is also the culmination of the four ennobling truths. And just to summarize that, we start, or the Buddha starts, by encouraging that one embrace, embrace suffering, which if we feel a little bit uncomfortable with the word suffering, boils down really to embracing one's life in its totality. The emphasis on suffering, I think, is important. It points, I think, to something that runs as a sort of deep keynote through all human experience that for us is, is valuable or meaningful. And that is that at some level, at some pitch, even in a moment of great, of great joy, 
of great rapture that can still be felt at the, at the bottom of that a certain sadness. If nothing other than the sadness, not a grim, woeful sadness, but a recognition that this will pass, that it will fade. I was reading a, a passage by William James this morning, and he talks of the human condition as being like a person who is standing on a frozen lake and surrounding the lake are great unassailable cliffs and the ice is melting. <clears throat> and in some way, this is an unavoidable description of our life. That there is... Um, that there is an inescapably tragic element to it. This doesn't mean, though, that we have to feel miserable and gloomy and depressed. On the contrary, by acknowledging the, the brevity of our life here, in acknowledging its in, inevitable end, we're also embracing it in its totality, and it's that total embrace, I feel, that allows us to experience this life in all of its strangeness, in all of its uniqueness, in all of its mystery, and to respond to it, not from our habitual vantage point of, of trying to get things and get rid of things and have things and so on and so forth, but rather to respond to it in terms of its mystery, of its strangeness, of the suffering, of the tragedy that is so often shot through it. So the four truths start with embracing suffering, which in turn becomes the condition for certain habits of mind falling away what is called the letting go of grasping, the letting go of craving. We don't voluntarily and willfully stop grasping, but we come to see the world in such a way in which we know deep down that that clutching, grasping, clinging approach is simply not going to work. It's, it, it's seen through. It's no longer something that uh, has any rationale for us anymore. When we no longer experience the world as just an arena of things that will cause us pleasure and pain and our task on life being to maximize getting those things that we like and getting rid of the ones that we don't like. When we see through that strategy, when we realize that that's just an endless cycle of repetitive behavior that will always bring us back to that same point at which we started, we begin to give up. Not give up in a sort of uh, remorseful way, but just certain habits, certain thoughts just don't happen anymore. It reminds one of Dogen's description of his uh, awakening. Uh, this would have been in 13th century China when he describes 
his moment of waking up as, as the falling away of body and mind, the dropping off of something, and that dropping off in some respects being entirely a natural um, culmination of living in the world from a particular perspective. Whether or not Dogen would have used the expression embracing suffering, I don't know. But it seems to me that that's how the four truths as a process work. It's one condition giving rise to another, to another, as the grasping of our minds begins to fall away, to diminish, we create the possibility for its stopping, what is sometimes translated as cessation. And again, this is quite a natural thing. When something begins to fall away, then it opens up the possibility of it entirely having dropped off. Because grasping, craving and so on, liking, disliking, hating, desiring, are so deeply rooted in our, in our nervous system, in our, in our neurobiological system, these are not things that are just going to disappear forever because we have some great insight they'll return. And I think one of the great um, insights of the Buddha as a psychologist is to recognize that no matter how deep one's insight might be, that does not mean that one somehow abolishes or eliminates all of those tendencies and habits and drives and impulses that really are just part of our human nature, our human organism. But these moments of stopping, and they may not be very long, they might be more sustained, are really the discovery of another space from which to live. And so the third truth, the experience of, of stopping, is the condition that allows the possibility of creating a path. And creating a path is the fourth ennobling truth. And of course the path that is created is the middle path. So if we look at the four truths in this way, we see how they not only make sense in terms of the sequence the Buddha gave them, embracing suffering, leads to a letting go of grasping, which leads to the experience of stopping, which leads to the creating and the entering of a path. But they also mirror, or let's say, uh, flesh out the Buddha's primary insight into the conditional nature of things, into contingency, into flux, into process. And a path, of course, is a wonderful metaphor of process. A path is not a static thing, but a path is rather a movement. And if we look at the structure of the path, which we'll come back to later, it too is not just one mystical or 
psychological understanding, but rather it starts with the way we see things, moves to how we think, speak, act, work. It too is a process. So the Buddha's um, vision is very much about living our lives within that template, within that framework of the middle path. Now, of course, most of you are familiar with these four truths, and the fourth truth is almost invariably called the path that leads to the cessation of suffering. In starting all over again, I think we have to consider what was truly distinctive about what the Buddha taught. And again, he says this in, in so many words to Subhadda as he's lying on his deathbed, that what is truly distinctive is the path. Much of the rest of Buddhism, particularly the idea about uh, transcending the cycle of birth and death, um, that really is simply a feature of Indian culture of his time. And a question I've been asking myself quite a lot recently um, is, uh, is precisely this one. What is it that is distinctive about what Siddhartha Gautama taught? In other words, what is it in what he says that cannot be derived from the worldview of his time. Now, the worldview of his time was that of um, a con an endless cycle of birth and death called sangsara, driven by the force of karma or action, deeds, good and bad deeds, and that the aim of the uh, human endeavor is to liberate oneself from this cycle of birth and death and thereby achieve union with uh, the divine, with Brahman, with God, so that the self, rather than misidentifying itself with uh, one's body and one's mind, disassociates itself therefrom and through tapas, through spiritual practice, comes to recognize its true unitary uh, identity uh, with the ultimate absolute reality of God. Now the Buddha quite explicitly lets go of any reference to an eternal self and any reference to an absolute or a divine reality that somehow transcends our everyday experience. But Buddhism does nonetheless broadly keep the doctrines of karma and rebirth. But we have to remember that these are not ideas that the Buddha himself um, initiated or started. That was just how the world was seen at that time. Much in the same way today, um, when we go to hear a, a lecture, um, pretty much on any theme, and the speaker then talks of 
of evolution by natural selection, uh, the galaxies of the solar, the solar systems within the galaxies, the um, constitution of the body from uh, subatomic particles. We don't question that. It's taken on trust as simply how our um, community, our society, um, recognizes and apprehends this world. We might be slightly skeptical about these things, but the chances are we broadly accept that worldview. And we have to try to put ourselves back, and this is quite tricky, into uh, the skin of a person living at the Buddha's time and forgetting everything that we know that has happened between then and now. Try to imagine what world such a person would have, have lived in. And such a world would be one that would have assumed the existence of multiple lifetimes and the goal of uh, liberation from the cycle of birth and death. What in Buddhism is sometimes called parinibbana, the great nirvana. Now in starting all over again, I feel that we have to simply put all of that aside. That's not to say that one rejects it as being false or untrue, but simply as not something that is distinctive in terms of what the Buddha taught. And this, again, once we do this, focuses attention primarily on the path as being the goal, not the path as being something which leads us to some sort of transcendent ending of birth and death and ending of suffering. And it's quite difficult because we are so familiar with Buddhism, those of us who have, have studied it, that it's quite a, a, a difficult intellectual exercise to somehow put all that to one side. Just to offer a sort of provisional answer to this question, what is distinctive about what the Buddha taught? I think there are four things which we can't derive from classical Indian tradition. The principle of conditioned arising or contingency, the process of the four ennobling truths, which includes, of course, the practice of the path, the practice of mindful attention to the specifics of life as it arises in each moment, and fourthly, uh, the power of self-reliance to become our own authority. None of those things you will find in the Upanishads. That is really, I think, what marks Siddhartha Gautama's teaching out. The principle of contingency, the practice of the, four, the, the process of the four truths, the practice of mindful attention, and the power of self-reliance. That's where, in a sense, we begin. Now let's go back to this path, this middle path. 
There's a passage where the Buddha offers the following analogy to explain what he means by this path. He says, imagine a man goes into a forest and then he discovers beneath his feet, all covered with undergrowth and brambles and weeds, an ancient path. And so he clears this away and then as he does so, he realizes that this ancient path leads to an ancient city. And that too is in disrepair. It's all broken down. At once it would have been a great, magnificent place. But now it's a bit like those ruins of the Mayan temples in Central America, for example. And then the Buddha says, well, imagine a person were to then go to um, the king of his land and say, look, I've discovered this ancient path leading to this ancient city, um, wouldn't it be a good idea to restore that ancient path and repair that ancient city? And then he says this ancient path is very much, um, or in the example, the ancient path is like the eightfold path, the middle path, the middle way. And what it leads to is this city. In other words, he sees the middle path not as something that he alone of all human beings has ever discovered, but actually something that's, um, that's been around for some time. It keeps getting discovered and then lost again. There's a doctrine in, in early Buddhism that some of you may have heard of called the Pacheka Buddha, the solitary Buddha. People who awaken to the reality of contingency, conditioned arising, entirely by themselves, without having any teacher, without having a Buddha coming along and saying, meditate on the twelve links. They stumble upon upon this, uh, this way of looking at the world entirely by their own genius, And by doing so, they can arrive at exactly the same degrees of enlightenment and awakening as a good, well-trained Buddhist. Now, this doctrine, I think, is a very important one, not that it's much taught, in that it shows that what the Buddha is speaking of is not the exclusive preserve of Buddhists, but rather it's something that could be found at any time, in any place, even if there's no knowledge of Buddhism at all. And so we might find in, um, in our own culture, in different uh, ancient traditions, um, any number of people who've kind of come to the same conclusions and have lived their lives according to their insight into the conditional nature of things. And what this path leads to, if we go back to our analogy, is to a city. Now a city, of course, a civis, is the basis of a civilization. It suggests very strongly that Siddhartha Gautama saw his middle path not as just a a spiritual uh, possibility, but rather as 
something that would lead to a kind of civilization. Now, exactly what kind of civilization, I think, will depend upon the conditions of the time. But what would certainly um, be underpinning that civilization would be a way of life that does not require belief in transcendental realities such as God. It does not require um, conviction in the existence of some eternal soul. It recognizes the radical contingency of life itself and it sees that not as something nihilistic but actually as opening up um, the fullest range of human possibilities. And were people to cultivate this path, not in isolation, but as a community, then that would be the foundation for the sort of society, the sort of civilization that the Buddha seems to have envisaged. He also, in describing this middle path, says that it's a path that avoids um, two dead ends. This is how he begins his first sermon. Now, this is again often translated not as dead end, but as extremes, the two extremes. But the word is anta in Pali and Sanskrit, which literally means an end or a limit. It's a word we come across again and again. A middle path is one that does not, is, is, is a path that leads somewhere rather than a dead end, which is a path that leads nowhere. And he talks of two kinds of dead ends. One is the dead end of overindulgence, and the other is the dead end of self-punishment. Again, this is sometimes translated as the, as the extreme of sensory indulgence and the extreme of self-mortification. But I want to try and understand this in terms that make sense uh, for us now. I don't think any of us, frankly, are going to uh, be, a tr be drawn to standing on one leg for 15 years which is one of the classic examples of self-mortification. And I think also many of us will find it at best unclear to see why sensory pleasure is a problem. Surely the problem lies in overindulgence and the problem on the other side lies in somehow turning against ourselves with a kind of hatred and both forms of behavior, the Buddha sees as dead ends. In other words, if we simply um, pursue a life of endless gratification, of sensual pleasure, we indulge and we indulge and we indulge and we indulge, that will not actually get us anywhere, even though we might spend a lot of energy doing it. But I think nowadays, when we think of self 
of overindulgence. We also think of addiction. We think of um, compulsive and obsessive behavior. In some ways, the dead ends that the Buddha spoke of two and a half thousand years ago have nowadays become more internalized and more pathological. Addiction. Um, often something shameful, something private, something we indulge in, that we can't help ourselves out of. And the flip side to that, self-punishment, rather than thinking of it as voluntarily taken on ascetic practices, we might think of its more contemporary variants, such as self-harming or anorexia, bulimia, extreme sports, sadomasochism. In other words, activities that we may slip into in despair at our failure at having uh, at our failure in indulgence it turns dark it turns negative it turns destructive and harming to ourselves and again i think each of us can perhaps think that through more clearly so a middle path is one that doesn't get stuck it doesn't get blocked in these dead ends but it's one that's able to move um, uh, freely and unimpeded and onwards into some as yet unknown destination the idea of the dead end um, illustrates very clearly how as their opposite the path is a process of unimpeded movement. <clears throat> and again, rather than thinking of a path as a, <clears throat> as a kind of um, a trail that is laid out before us, all we have to do is just walk along it, we perhaps need to think of a path here more metaphorically, and that is <clears throat> as, a, as a kind of path thing. Um, in, in Sanskrit and Pali, the word path can also be a verb. It's not so much the thing you walk on, but it's the process of movement itself. And what is um, <clears throat> striking in the, in the metaphor of the path is that um, it has to do with the path being an empty space. A path is actually an absence of something. When we think of a path, we often think of it as something that is superimposed on a landscape. We see a path running through the field. But when we get down on our hands and knees and look at it, we find, in fact, there's nothing there. That the path is that bit of the field from which grass and bushes have been removed. All paths are gaps. And what, in, what those gaps enable 
is us or animals to be able to move unimpeded along them. That's the beauty of a path. It gives us not only a sense of orientation and direction, even though we have no idea of where it might go, but first and foremost, it gives us the freedom to move. The same is true in the, uh, the classical Buddhist understanding of the idea of space, akasha. We tend to think of space as some... Uh, when, when, when we say there is, there's plenty of space in this room, we think of space as a kind of static container in which we can put things. But the Buddhists understood space not like that at all. The classic definition of space in Buddhist philosophy is the absence of resistance. The absence of resistance. A space is something that enables you to move to reach another point without anything getting in your way. So the metaphor of space, the metaphor of path, are both dynamic metaphors. They're about moving without obstruction. And again, we're probably used to um, hearing when we are taught meditation of how many obstructions and hindrances there are to the path. Greed and hatred and restlessness and lethargy and doubt are the five classic hindrances. But again, we once more are back to this notion of, of movement and the impediment to movement. When our meditation is proceeding well, or when we say to ourselves, that was a good one, I think what we very often mean is that we entered into some kind of flow. Even though we were sitting still, we had the sense that something had fallen away within us that allowed a kind of uh, a conscious flow of energy to be released. Whereas when our meditation doesn't go well, we're often saying that we felt stuck, that we just went round and round and round and round and round, one particular worry, for example, and didn't get anywhere. We felt hemmed in by our bodies, hemmed in by our emotions and our feelings, rather than having that sense of a kind of liberated movement. Now, of course, in China, which is the basis of, of the Zen tradition, the notion of the path is already very, very well established. It's called the Tao. Tao means path. It doesn't mean anything more exotic than that. But again, when you look at the metaphors of, of Tao, a very common one is, is that of water that flows, or the valley, Lao Tzu says, is like the Tao. The valley being that, uh, the, 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 that, that, that crux between two hills through which water is then able to flow freely. And when the Buddha speaks of um, the experience of, um, of stopping that then allows 
the entering of the path, he calls it sotapanna, which means entering the stream. Entering the stream means entering the Eightfold Path. That, that, that is quite canonical. So once again, there's this metaphor of water, this metaphor of fluidity, this metaphor of movement. The path, though, as we've already said, is not reducible to certain explicitly spiritual activities. It's not a spiritual path. It certainly has elements that we would call spiritual, for example, mindfulness, concentration, and so on. But in fact, the Buddha repeatedly and consistently describes this path as embracing all aspects of our human life. It starts with a vision, the way we see things, the way we see the world, the way we see ourselves. And again, in a sort of strange kind of holomorphic uh, twist, when the Buddha is sometimes asked, well, what is right view? What, what is true vision? Samaditi. He says true vision is to see the four ennobling truths. So in other words, the four truths are, are found like in a hologram, in that one element of the path itself. But again, in the, the emphasis is process and movement, seeing our lives not as being a fixed point, me, my alaya, my place, that I hold on to for dear life and try and preserve, but rather seeing oneself, seeing one's life, as a constant movement towards something which is unknown, which is mo motivated and driven by what I value most deeply, and that I seek to um, instantiate or to embody in everything I do. So this underlying vision of contingency, of the ennobling truths, of the middle path, is the condition that gives rise to the second step in that process which is called samasankapa authentic thinking and I think we can include uh, in thinking also imagination in other words when we come viscerally to see the world from another vantage point that of contingency fluidity, interconnectedness, that also then will lead us to think differently. It will allow us to imagine another kind of life, imagine other possibilities. So far from promoting a path that leads to, to some kind of non-conceptual transcendent insight, the Buddha acknowledges and recognizes the crucial intermediary role of thought and imagination, of thinking, clear thinking. In fact, there's a very rich tradition of critical thought in Buddhism. Again, not much known about 
in the West compared to, say, how much we know about you know, techniques of meditation. After all, everybody here has heard of Milarepa, probably, but I doubt many of you know who Dharmakirti is. Why not? He's much more important than Milarepa in the history of Buddhism. But he was a logician, an epistemologist, which we don't tend to find terribly interesting. Certainly not very spiritual. So, so, so thinking, imagination, is the precondition then for what we say, what we do, how we work, which are the next three steps of the Eightfold Path. So we move from an internal vision to externalized acts in a world with others. And this, of course, is then the domain of ethics, of morality. And that way of life that we begin to establish for ourselves in this world with others becomes the basis, as we mentioned the other night, for how we commit ourselves, how we focus our energies through resolve, through effort, and then to mindfulness, to concentration. But we shouldn't think of the Eightfold Path as um, a series of linear steps. We start at step one, and then when we get to step eight, we can wrap up our things and go home. Because what are we mindful of? What do we concentrate on? These activities don't occur in a vacuum. They occur in a world. And at this point, we find ourselves starting all over again with our relationship to life, to suffering. And so the, the end of these four truths, mindfulness, concentration, bring us back to the beginning, but at another level of depth, of engagement, of stillness, of clarity. So we're mindful and focused on suffering itself, on the nature of the world in which we live, which in turn will lead us to a condition where those grasping habits of mind begin to fall away again. And, and, and our moments of, of stopping, of stillness, of openness, are perhaps restored at another pitch, which allows the opening to the path once again. So what we have in terms of a, um, of, of a middle path is actually more like a, a feedback loop rather than a strict linear process. We're constantly returning, constantly coming back, constantly beginning again. And what this whole process is about is living our lives according to the values, the template of values, which inform this practice of the path. In other words, what the Buddha is actually concerned with, and I think what Zen and all the practice traditions are concerned with, is not some hypothetical cessation of suffering. 
that's only meaningful if we accept that classical Indian worldview. If we don't, everything changes. What matters is what we do now. In this world, which as far as we know, might be the only one like this that ever has been and ever will be. We have no knowledge at all of other realms, other forms of existence. There probably are some. But as far as we know, the only thing of which we are certain is the fact that this world exists and beings suffer. And that is enough. We don't need any more, any theories of past and future lives. The, the challenge of this path, the challenge of, 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 of living this path, both individually and communally, is about trying to rebuild this ancient city. It's a civilizing process. And it's also, this practice of the path, it's also our refuge. There's a very moving section in the Sangyutta Nikaya towards the end where the Buddha is talking to his cousin Mahanama. And it seems as though this is occurring right at the end of Mahanama's life. I think, I don't need to go into all the details about that. In any case, Mahanama asks the Buddha what it means to enter the stream. And he says to enter the stream, in other words, to enter the path, occurs when you take refuge in the Buddha as a kind of optimal human condition, in the Dhamma, which is the practice of the path itself, and in the Sangha, in the community of those who support that process. So again, the practice of the path, therefore, this middle path, is also a way of talking about commitment, a way of talking about the primary way in which we orient ourselves in our lives, our core values that we somehow seek to, to realize, however inadequately at times, uh, in the midst of the world of which we are a part. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.